Major support for Out to Lunch is provided by the law firm of Jones Walker, established in 1937 with over 375 attorneys in offices throughout the U.S., providing a comprehensive range of services to a local, national, and international client base. JonesWalker.com. And by Hancock Whitney. Hancock Whitney is here for families, here for businesses, here for communities during this challenging time. Visit HancockWhitney.com slash COVID-19 for the latest. And by... Shorten Associates, legal recruiters in Louisiana and Texas. From our socially distanced virtual lunch table in Lafayette, we're out to lunch with Christian Mader, publisher and editor of The Current. It's business, Acadiana style. Welcome to Out to Lunch. I'm Christian Mader. There's a silly proverb, um, those who can do and those who can't teach. I, I say it's silly because the best teachers I've had are those who can do and can teach. Skill is immensely valuable when you're teaching a craft or a trade or a sport. And teaching, in fact, is a, is a pretty good product, especially when the subject is something that students can spend a lifetime learning and enjoying. Melissa Hill created a space for folks to do just that. Niche Creative Studio in Lake Charles is part craft shop, but all creative studio. A third-generation sewer, Melissa grew up crafting and carved out a, a side hustle making memory quilts while she worked in nonprofits. She launched Niche as a center for what she calls missional creativity, helping people find their own creative passions. Melissa launched Niche in 2014. Melissa Hill, welcome to Out to Lunch. Thanks for having me. Uh, my next guest, Savannah Vincent Thompson, accomplished her childhood mission pretty early. At 19, she was the first American to qualify for the Olympic trampoline finals and joined Team USA for the 2012 Olympic Games in London. Since then, she's made a living training the next generation of Olympians at her, at her gym, Hangtime TNT. She offers tumbling, cheer, and gymnastics courses at two locations, one in Scott and one in Broussard. And somehow she squeezed in winning a national championship in 2018 before stepping back from Olympic competition to focus on her work. Savannah Vincent Thompson, welcome to Out to Lunch. Thank you for having me. Um, Melissa, I, I, so crafting is, as the name of your studio implies, like a niche thing. I mean, you know, it's a thing that some people do, some people don't. You know, it's a, it, you might call it a hobby, you might call it a passion, right? And it, but it's often a skill set that, that you find people would pass on within families, as is the case in your own, right? So I, I would think it'd be kind of intimidating for somebody who's like no experience with this whatsoever to walk into a store and, you know, pick up a piece of fabric or a ball of yarn and sort of get started. So, so do you find that, that the folks that come into niche are folks that are already really into crafting or, or, or are you finding folks that are sort of the crafting curious like folks who don't really have a lot of experience and they're wanting to come in and get started? Yeah, I find it's a, it's a good mix of both. So yes, I do think that a lot of times crafting does become uh, generational. So, but then there are just people who are really curious about it um, and want to do something, but they're not exactly sure what type of crafting. There are so many different types of creative outlets out there. So we find that it's not even just uh, for people to find their niche and whether they're a crafter or not a crafter, but I really do feel like everybody is creative in some form or fashion. You just may not know what your specific niche is. So we try to um, expose people to lots of different types of creative outlets. And so they can try things out. There is an intimidation factor. You go into a large corporate craft store, you have aisles and aisles of all different kinds of supplies and things, and you have no idea what they are or how they're supposed to be used. So the idea is that you can come and take a class um, and see if it is your niche. And it, it may or may not be. You may take a crochet class 
and decide this is not fun at all. This is really stressful and I don't have the hand-eye coordination for this and, and this is not something I enjoy. So that's one thing off your list and try something new. So you'll get into a cake decorating class and you may decide, wow, I really do like this. This is not stressful for me. This is a skill that I really enjoy doing. So the idea is to try to take some of that stress out that's naturally in there because crafting is, um, in my opinion, not supposed to be stressful. Um, I tell people when they come to our painting classes, if at any moment you're starting to feel that weight, that stress kind of coming on you, take a breath, maybe a sip of wine, whatever you need to do, and just remember that it's supposed to be fun. So whatever you need to do to kind of get back into that headspace to where you're enjoying the process, that's what it's all about. So you've mentioned like cake decorating, you've mentioned painting, you've mentioned crocheting. I mean, like that's a pretty broad spectrum of activities. And so it kind of raises a question in my mind, like, okay, so when we're talking about crafting, where's the line between what's crafting and what's culinary arts and crafting and visual arts and crafting and you know, artisanship? I mean, how do you even begin to sort of say like, this is crafting and that isn't? Yeah, I think it's all just, it's a creative outlet, which is why we're niche creative studio and not necessarily niche craft studio. So I think that sometimes we give the word crafting and it, it kind of has in its mind, oh, that's just a hobby. That's just something, you know, where you're, you're gluing something or doing a mixed medium sort of thing. But I really do feel like any form of creativity is is an outlet for crafting and being um you know just sort of figuring out using your hands using different materials using your creative mind i really do also believe that it's it's both left brain and right brain so you're using uh logic when we sew we are we're looking at a pattern and there are processes and we are measuring and we are doing some exact and precise sort of things but then we're also using the other part of our brain which we're being creative in what fabric should we use what should go together how do we put these you know pieces together to create a look um so it really is kind of all encompassing so any of those visual outlets or um, art or creativity i think all can be encompassed in that and i really do think that no one is uh good at everything so i own the space um and but i coordinate these amazing crafty, um, creative women who all have their own specific niche that they're great at and, and bring all those pieces together to form a studio. So I don't teach all of our crochet classes. I don't teach all the painting. I don't teach all the sewing. My niche is sewing. I enjoy that. I teach our kids classes. Um, I like teaching the next generation on how to sew because I think it's a, a, becoming a little bit of a lost art. Um, but But I don't teach everything else. So I partner with other creative, um, in most cases, women at this point, um, and come alongside them and encourage them to share their love and passion for their particular niche with other people. So Savannah, I, you know, speaking of niches and being great at things, I mean, I would imagine, you know, kids come into your gym and it's gotta be really exciting to learn from, from you and, and kids, like the, the, the places you've been and being able to compete at that level. But it also strikes me that that sets a really high bar, right? I can imagine like going to soccer camp and, you know, uh, Diego Maradona or something was the guy that was coaching in and I'm thinking like, well, I mean, like that's the standard I got to reach. That seems pretty high. So do, do, do the kids that come into your gym, I mean, are they mostly folks that are looking to find follow your path, right? Like to, to go into serious competition or is it mostly kids that are sort of, again, casual about the idea? They're just sort of trying to figure out if this is something that they want to do. So basically in our facility, we have a, a wide 
genre of um, programs for the kids to try out. So of course we definitely have competitive gymnastics and that is my main focus with the kids. Um, I'm the head coach of that program and, and I, I try to share my passion as a competitor with my kids. And if they are interested in taking their journey in our facility um, that far, then they had that opportunity. But a majority of our kids, I would say 90% of the students that are here in our facility are here recreationally. They just love the idea of the sport and um, myself and our coaches that we have here do an amazing job sharing our passions of the sport and the technique of what they need to learn. So we start them out as early as walking age all the way to 18 years old. So we have a different uh, range of age, gr age groups that we're just sharing the love and passion of trampoline and tumbling and cheerleading and um, of of course, the way um, most places are, I cannot teach every every course and every class. So I have an amazing group of coaches here that help also in that department as far as sharing their love and passion with our children. And so I have certain people that specialize only in our preschool area that teach the three to five year olds. And then I have coaches that teach anywhere from five to right at that teenage years. And of course, my my passion is, again, the competitive side. That is where my heart is. That is where I spent 16 years of my career uh, and journey in the sport in, in the competitive side. So, um, of course, I love the recreational side as well. And I get to go and, and see the kids start to find the love of the sport there. That's where it starts out. Um, very few kids come into the program day one and say, I want to compete. Um, they have to learn to love the sport and learn what the sport is about before they can decide if they really want to make this something serious. So, so the kind of, you know, something I've always kind of wondered, I mean, you mentioned like kids are coming in at walking age, like, kids come in real young. I know in speaking gymnastics, right, it's not uncommon for people to really get into this at a high level or I should say like working really hard at it young. I mean, how do you guys determine you know, at that age, a, a child has a real aptitude for this? Because like I have a two and a half year old, right? And I like to think, okay, well, he seems he seems pretty like good at climbing things, but I, I I'm not confident that over time you know he would make a great gymnast. So I mean, how do you even begin to identify those kids that are going to separate themselves and move to say that competitive side? So of course, at two and a half, it's very difficult. I have an 18 month old as well, and he loves to flip, he loves to jump, but I can I still cannot say that he's going to be a gymnast one day. I would love to see him venture into that, but uh, it's very early to to determine that. Usually around that five or six year old mark, you start seeing the children that are really interested in the sport. And what I mean by that is not just interested in the idea. They basically eat, breathe, love gymnastics. That's all they think about. They are eager to learn and grow their skills, even at that young of an age. Um, and it's not always just the most talented kids. Uh, for instance, I was not the most talented kid um, growing up in this sport, believe it or not. Uh, I had the passion and the determination, and I believe that's what got me as far as I have gotten in my journey. Uh, but you don't just look for the talented kids. You look for the kids that just genuinely love what they're doing. And if they're willing to meet you halfway and take the instruction and what you're trying to give them to help them grow, then that's how you, you can start to determine, like I said, around five or six years old, that's a little early, but it's, you can still tell if, if they're wanting to pursue it long-term. I'm so fascinated. The fact that you got to the level that you did. Um, do you find that like 
part of it is talent, but part of it is like, there's some sort of mental thing that people who get to the level that you got to, I just don't feel like even talent is enough to accomplish what you've accomplished. No, I, I would agree with you there. Um, you know, first of all, thank you. I, I've spent a lot of many, many of my years training. Um, so it's a huge accomplishment for myself just to get that far. Um, but I definitely agree. I don't believe it is just talent. It, it definitely, there's much more into it. And, you know, I've seen many talented kids come through the program or even kids that I've competed with through the years that were so much more talented than I was, but they just lacked the passion and the, um, the will to want to make their self better and the work ethic. Um, so a lot of that plays a huge factor. And of course, mentally, you have to be at a point where it's going to get, it's going to get tough. It's going to get hard and you're going to want to give up, but everybody wants to see you pursue that and keep pushing through. And sometimes it's more of a mental battle than it is ability or physical. You're listening to out to lunch on Christian Mater. I'm talking with Savannah Vincent Thompson of Hangtime TNT Gym and Melissa Hill of Niche Creative Studio. You know, Melissa, I know you said earlier that at the end of the day you feel like crafting needs to be something that brings you joy. Maybe it doesn't need to be stressful, but I mean, any skill that takes time to develop, right, is you're going to hit some wall where you're like, I can't get this right. I mean, do you find that, that, that folks like have to have a similar? I mean, I would imagine the determination levels are different. You're not necessarily putting your body through as much stress, right, as you might in, in becoming a professional athlete or, or, or a highly competitive one. But I mean, like, what are those sort of like, you know, crocheting barriers? Surely people have to come into this saying like, look, there are people who get really good at this and then people who, you know, they just do it for fun. I mean, is there kind of a separation of wheat and chaff in, in crafting? Yeah, I mean, I really think so because as you'd be surprised, I think it just depends on the motivation of why someone wants to get into it. A lot of times people just need a stress reliever. They work, they have a, a job every day that's, um, that's stressful, that they don't feel like they can be creative in. And at night, maybe even after the kids go to bed, they just need some sort of creative outlet. And so for them, if they get stressed with what they're doing, they're just going to put it up and go find a different outlet to, to be creative in or to find joy in. But you'd be surprised, a lot of people are trying to, especially with the pandemic and everything, they're, they're getting into creating for a living. So we, where we teach a skill of sewing, um, I can't tell you how many people went home and started making masks um, and selling them because there was no manufacturing in place at the time at the early part of the pandemic. And so that became a business for them to be able to provide for their family. Maybe they got laid off or maybe uh, the quarantine kind of shut down their business for the time being. So sometimes, yeah, they get into the, either way. I think they should find joy in it. But the motivation, I think, behind the learning process either is going to be an outlet um, as just a side hobby, or if it's going to be a business, an income, there's going to be some stresses. Yes, with that, you've got clients to deal with and you have to, you know, get really good at your craft in order to be able to sell a product that people would be happy with. But either way, I think it needs to bring you joy. You know, Savannah, I mean, I'd be curious to know, um, you know, speaking of the pandemic or just general economic changes, right? I mean, one thing that seems to be happening in athletics is there you know, growing concern, right, about child safety. I mean, football is obviously a very different kind of thing, but, you know, we're changing the way that we teach kids to play soccer. We're changing the way we teach kids to play all kinds of sports. I mean, has that impacted the the sort of the gymnastics, I mean, industry, for lack of a better word? Do, do kids come in with a different set of expectations or maybe kids leaving, 
you know, contact team sports and coming into your gym because their parents are concerned about, uh, you know, the safety of, of a kid's long-term health. So we've actually seen kind of a little bit of everything that you just mentioned there. Um, we have had some students of ours that have been with us for a very long time actually drop out of the gym due to the pandemic, just wanting to take a break and, and be safe staying at home. And, and we have absolutely encouraged that, of course, you know, each their own. Um, and we've also had families that have left other sports and decided to come join us because it was, like you said, a little less impact kind of um, where we're, what they're able to do with us is they, they are in a classroom setting. However, we do not have um, physical contact with each other throughout that time. Now the coach and the student will, of course, um, that's part of our teaching, but they, they're not going to for instance, like football or basketball, where you're on top of each other. Um, we've had a little hiccup there with our cheerleading, of course, because we stunt. And so with stunting, you you have four people in a stunt group and you have to physically touch each other. So we've had to, to make some adjustments, especially early on when the phases were different um, and the regulations were different as far as safety, con uh, safety management goes in, in the facilities. But um, it's definitely been a, a journey to say the least. We've, we've learned to uh, continue to keep our classes going at a safe rate without having to be so physical. Um, so where we might have done before many spotting stations throughout their one hour class, we've kind of minimized that and done more of a skill focus rather than many skills at a time. Um, again, just to, for the safety of our students, for the safety of our staff, and uh, of course, for the safety of um, everyone else in our facility. So. Yeah. I mean, Melissa, it sounds like you guys kind of have a social element to what you do too. I mean, it makes me think of, you know, shops that we've had here, like we have um, places you can go, you can do, you know, painting in groups with friends and that kind of thing. Um, but I also think like, look, I mean, crafting is something that often people do by themselves, right? It can be a, a, a like a way of, of, it's got a meditative property to it. I mean, ha have, you know, consumer trends or, or personal behaviors sort of changed what you perceive to be the demand for this kind of thing. I know, obviously, you know, this. I'm sure that the hurricanes and things in, 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 um, in Lake Charles have been problematic. But I mean, but outside of that, I mean, has this really changed the way people approach this um, activity? I think, yeah, there is a social aspect to it um, because creative people like to be around other creative people. So when we do classes. Um, they, some, a lot of times they're coming in because they want to learn, you know, advance in their skill. Um, but sometimes it's just to be around other people who have like, um, you know, hobbies and, and, and interests. So yeah, there is a social aspect to so, it. Man, it strikes me like you've got two locations, right? I mean, or you operate in Bruce, you operate in Scott, um, and um, neither are terribly big places, but it seems like there's a lot of demand for what you do. I mean, is our kids just going gangbusters for, for gym? I mean, how are you guys doing this to where you, you need to have two hang time TNTs in, in, in Lafayette, Paris? <laughs> um, so of course our original spot that we first started our facility was in Scott. Um, it is of course the bigger of the two locations that we have. Um, however, we had an opportunity come up, of course, during the middle of this pandemic, it was a little bit of a risk to take, um, but my husband and I have always wanted to have a location across town because there is nothing there uh, in, in Broussard that is an actual recreational trampoline 
facility. And what I mean by that is they have jump zone, they have elevation station where you can go and play and jump on the trampolines. But to actually get instruction, uh, there was not anything in the market. There are plenty of gymnastics facilities in our area. Actually, probably for such a small area, we have probably one of the most um, the, the most places that, that are offered here in Acadiana. There's probably eight plus facilities. Um, we are two of them. So it was a it, it was a little bit of a risk to take, uh, but we have done really well out there. It is slowly but surely growing. Of course, we bought uh, the facility in the middle of a pandemic, um, so it has been very slow moving. But it's it's been nice to kind of remember when almost because it's it's been we're going on year six of hang time being an organization. And so uh, to remember what it was like that first year where it is slow and it, it's time consuming and very rewarding when it does grow. Um, so we are, we've been able to offer what, what we have in Scott is hang time TNT gymnastics. Um, again, that's our original location. And then the location in Scott is called hang time elite. And that facility specializes in competitive cheer. Um, it, the facility was big enough to offer that for our families, uh, both Scott location and Broussard. And now we have, since um, we've gotten the ball rolling, should I say, out there, we have now offered a, a variety of recreational classes as well. So we have cheerleading recreational classes, tumbling and trampoline and tumbling recreational classes now in Broussard. So it's very similar to what pretty much everything that we offer here in Scott, except for the competitive trampoline and tumbling program. That, and that's my specialty. Hmm. I mean, Melissa, it strikes me you know, a niche operation, right? The nature of what you're doing would kind of have a small market. And like Charles is not a small city. It's not a big city either. I mean, what's the volume of interest for what you guys do in, in that in a place like that? Well, right now um, it, it's down a little bit, but it's really most, mostly because people um, aren't in their homes. And so crafting is not a high priority at the moment. We're still doing, um, you know, doing well right now, but it's, we're, we're, I'm seeing, we're starting to get back to it, but, but for a little while there, it was just people needed us to sew for them or create for them um, or they can't were coming in to do supplies they weren't really looking to add new skills or learn new things um, most of them still have their craft rooms still in storage or things along those lines but I, but I do feel like um, it's coming back around towards that well I mean outside the pandemic I mean it, it maybe given trying to get a sense of like what how big is a class size are you running them you know twice a day or people just coming in a couple times a week I mean it sounds like the 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 teaching aspect of your business is a big part of it. I mean, is that what drives the revenue? I mean, just trying to get a sense of how that works. Sure. Yeah. I mean, we feel like if we can, if we teach people how to, how to do a skill, then they can come back to us for the supplies that they need. Um, so there's sort of a reciprocal. Um, so we're going to teach a man to fish. And so he'll come back and, you know, got, you have to continue to get all the supplies that you need for that. So yeah, I definitely do feel like there is an element of that where, um, that we keep the classes smaller only because when you're teaching hands-on sort of project, um, you've got to sort of get in there with people and, and show them up close how to do that. So with that one instructor or two instructors, um, so, you know, eight to 10 people um, in a class. Um, but if it's a painting class and people are just sort of having fun and sort of doing their own thing, you know, 20 or 30, depending on 
the group or it's a birthday or people who know each other or don't know each other. Um, but we try to keep it small in the beginning, especially with our newbie classes. So if you are brand new to sewing, I want to keep my class, my sewing class small because I want to sit next to you at your, at your sewing machine and I want to show you the buttons and I want to make sure you know what you're doing so I can give you a good solid foundation. And then maybe in our upper level classes, we may do a, little, a few more people because you know the basics. Um, you're just learning a skill to add on to that so we can add a few more people in a little less hands on. Um, so it just kind of depends on the skill level too. Hmm. You know, Savannah, I noticed that like, you know, it seems like group events is also a big part of what you guys do. I mean, how, how much of that is really part of the business versus the instruction side of it? So basically the only thing that we do as far as our facility goes, that would be considered group would be like birthday parties or we do summer camps um, or camps when school's closed. And we pretty much, uh, and we're waiting for our camps to really kick off this summer. And we're hoping that everything continues to progress um, because um, like she was mentioning earlier, we were closed down for quite some time at the very beginning of this pandemic for, we were closed down for, I think, four months. Um, so we're really looking forward to having a successful summer and a summer where we can operate as normal or as what our close to normal will be. Um, and of course, a lot of our competitive teams, a lot of their events have been canceled because of, you know, the pandemic and, and people taking precautions. So I see more of um, it being a, an issue for our competitive teams. And so we're just hoping that we can, last year, our year was cut short. So we're hoping that we can just fulfill the rest of this season. Um, our season for trampling and tumbling will end in July. And for our competitive cheer teams, we're, we're approaching the end mark. Some end in March and some will end in April. So we, uh, it looks very promising and we were able to complete a full season. Um, so yeah, we, we don't really see too much of that with our recreational side. We keep it very small already, eight to one instructor. And of course they're not group activities. Um, I mean, there's kids in the class, but they're all able to do their own individual thing while we're able to coach. I imagine the hardest part for, for both of you, obviously being people very passionate about teaching and working with people on things that you love, right? It's been hard to be away from that. And, and I'm glad to hear that, you know, there's a, a positive outlook for both of you to be able to get back to that. And, and, and I'm sure it's really gratifying. Savannah and Melissa, it was great having you both on the show. Thanks for coming on Out to Lunch Acadiana. Thank you so much. Thank you. My guests on Out to Lunch Acadiana today have been Savannah Vincent Thompson of Hangtime TNT and Melissa Hill of Niche Creative Studio. We edited this show to fit into the time slot here on KRBS. You can hear our unedited conversation and find out more about Melissa and Savannah and what they do by listening to the Out to Lunch Acadiana podcast, which you can find anywhere you get podcasts and on our website, it's acadiana.com. If you want to know what we look like, you can find photos from this show on itsacadiana.com and on our social media. These photos were taken by Jill LaFleur. You can find more of her work at lafleurphoto.com. And one of these days... We'll get back to hosting Out to Lunch Acadiana live and in person at the French Press in downtown Lafayette. Until then, however, you can go to the French Press yourself for breakfast or lunch or order it for delivery. Out to Lunch Acadiana is a production of INO Broadcasting for itsacadiana.com and KRBS 88.7 FM. The producer of our show is Grant Morris. Our technical producer is Eric Merle. Our associate producers are Molly Richard and Jane Risher. Our researcher is Maggie Mendel. I'm Christian Mater. I'm editor of The Current, Lafayette's nonprofit source for local news. And to find out more of what matters in Lafayette, head over to thecurrentla.com and sign up for our newsletter. 
Till then, I'll see you here again next time around our virtual lunch table for more business Acadiana style on Out to Lunch Acadiana. Bye-bye. Major support for Out to Lunch is provided by the law firm of Jones Walker, established in 1937 with over 375 attorneys and offices throughout the U.S., providing a comprehensive range of services to a local, national, and international client base. JonesWalker.com and by Hancock Whitney. Hancock Whitney is here for families, here for businesses, here for communities during this challenging time. Visit HancockWhitney.com slash COVID-19 for the latest. And by... Shorten Associates, legal recruiters in Louisiana and Texas. Mitchell Foreman wrote and performs all the music on Out to Lunch. You can hear Mitchell's music anywhere great jazz is sold or streamed and at MitchellForeman.com. 